This is the Green Student Ministries High School Podcast of the Chapel in Green. We are committed to our students being known, knowing Jesus, and becoming kingdom workers. We hope this podcast serves to encourage, challenge, and to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is Green Student Ministries. Hey, if we, if we have not gotten a chance to meet before, my name is Marshall Mason. And uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to get to be here a couple of times over the last, uh, last few years. But um, I have a couple of life updates, um, if, I can, if I can just update you on a few things that's happened in my life since, uh, since I've been with you last. First of all, the biggest one is that I'm now a father. Um, and like a good father, I brought with me uh, a picture of my little girl. Uh, she's 12 weeks old. Her name is Maisie. And uh, yeah, she's just the cutest little thing uh, in the world. Cutest baby, right? Like, that's, that's by far the cutest baby you've ever seen. Um, she might be here a little later, so if you hear a baby crying, know she's just, like, giving me an amen. Like, she's just like, Dad, preach it. Uh, you're doing a great job. Now, another thing is that, uh, and some of you know this, is that uh, I, my, myself, my wife, and a group of great people, we are planting a church in Akron, on the east side of Akron, and, and it's called Rubber City Church. Um, and so we're just so excited about what God is doing um, already. He's uh, he's just making ways. People are coming to meet Jesus. They're growing. And so uh, if, 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 you, if and when you pray, I mean, pray for us as, as we are just on this journey. Uh, it's, it's a challenging one, but it is so great. So uh, be, be in tune for more things happening uh, with Rubber City Church. Now, we are in this series called Doctrine. And I, I applaud Ryan for, for wanting to go, wanting to take a, a, a big group of high school students through some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, this demonstrates that he has a great love for you because he wants you to know what we believe. He doesn't just want to talk about, you know, uh, he just want, doesn't want to just give you good advice, but especially for those of you who are upperclassmen that you're about to enter into, uh, you're about to go off to college or enter into the workforce, and if your roots in the Christian faith aren't deep, if you don't know the things that we really believe, then life is going to toss you all over the place. And so this is a great series for you to be here. Um, if, if, uh, if you're new to church and you're, you're newer, maybe this is your first Sunday, this is a great series to be a part of because this gives you an opportunity to kind of stand outside of Christianity and look through a crystal clear window of what exactly do these people believe. And so, uh, and, and we have uh, a, a Green Student Ministry High School podcast that you can go back and listen to all the, all the uh, sermons surrounding our core doctrines through the Christian faith. So um, today we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation. Salvation, some, um, some synonyms of, of salvation is deliverance, uh, rescue, reconciliation, and so all these things, um, we're going to talk about what God did to bring us salvation. Now here's the key, we cannot afford to get this one wrong. Like, we can't afford it. There's, there's some doctrinal issues that, that there, there's a little bit of liberty to, to, to disagree slightly here, but we cannot afford to get the doctrine of salvation wrong. What God did through Jesus to bring us salvation. And so uh, I want to go to Romans chapter 5. This is, this is the Apostle Paul writing because he's wanting to make sure that, that, the, that the church in Rome gets the doctrine of salvation right. And so we're going to read... Uh, from Romans 5, and, and this is going to kind of be our foundation for our time together, starting in verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Any ungodly people in the room? That's all of us. All of us. Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare to die. So, so what Paul's saying there is, like, if, if you got a really good friend in your life, perhaps you would jump in front of a bullet for them. But, like, nobody would die for someone that's not good, right? Not the case. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us that we, while we were still sinners, while we were still against him, while we were still enemies of him, that Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Uh, verse 10, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. Now, one of the main, uh, one of the main themes in the Bible is God with us. It's this, it's this, it's this major theme um, throughout from, from the beginning to the end about God wanting to be with his people. We see it particularly when Jesus comes to earth. One thing uh, that we're called to um, that we are called to call Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But it, but it goes even further back than just Jesus showing up on the scene. The greatest uh, and, and most frequent, I should say, most frequent command in all the Bible is fear not or do not fear, some sort of variation of that. that God says, fear not, but there, it's always followed by a promise that says, for I am with you. So fear not, for I am with you, God with us, I am with you. You don't need to fear because I am with you. And even to the very first pages of this Bible, you see um, God in perfect communion with his creation. Adam and Eve, before sin had entered into the world, they had a perfect uh, relationship with God, perfect communion. But as you and I know, sin entered into the world whenever they disobeyed God. Sin entered in the world like a cancerous disease and infected everything. And we still feel the ripples effects of that to this day. Things in our lives don't function the way that they were supposed to. But God put a plan into motion. And so uh, the world fell into sin, Adam and Eve, and so God, as a result of this, he curses Adam, he curses the man, he curses the woman, and he curses the serpent who, who, who is Satan taking form, uh, and, and, and he tempts Adam and Eve. And this is what God said whenever he uh, was cursing the serpent. He says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And catch this. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, what this is, is this is the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. This is the first telling that, you know what, Satan, someone is going to come, and he is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel on the way, but he will have victory over you. All the way in Genesis chapter 3, God's plan of salvation and reconciliation, God is putting a plan into motion. His plan is going to bring us out of sin, out of bondage, and back into right relationship with him. Now, all of us, we enjoy a good reconciliation story. Not a person in this room doesn't enjoy a good reconciliation story. Um, for, for instance, I, uh, my wife and I, unfortunately, um, we had to put our, our dog to sleep a couple weeks ago. Um, if you have been through that, you know how hard that is. You were literally losing a, a, a family member. But one of my favorite things about uh, about my, my dog Tyson is whenever we would come back from a trip, oftentimes my, 
my parents would, would watch our dog. And so my sister lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and so we, we would get to take pretty uh, cheap trips out there whenever we'd come home. I loved coming home to my parent, uh, coming to my parents' house to pick him up and him just going berserk. If you, if you have a dog and you've ever been away for a long period of time, it's likely that you have experienced this. They'll grab their ball and they'll just do laps around the house, doing laps around the house, going crazy. He's, he's just so excited. Daddy's home. He, I've never seen anybody look at me with that much excitement. I don't think Michelle looked at me that way on our wedding day. Like, like he was just so excited. Dad is home. Dad is home. In addition to that, if if, if someone, one of you in the room would say, hey, Marshall, I know you don't, don't have this kind of money, uh, but if I, I would give you a million dollars if you could make 90% of this room cry. You got three minutes, go. What I would instantly do is probably go to YouTube, go to the back, find a compilation of YouTube videos to put up on the screen of like military parents coming home and surprising their, their family and their children. Have you seen this on social media? There is few things that will melt your heart than, than a mom or a dad who's been away, sometimes in active duty, so there's no real guarantee that they're going to ever be reconciled. They're ever going to come back together with their family, but they surprise them, and they just embrace, and it will melt your heart. We all enjoy a good reconciliation story. And I think one of the best examples of, of a salvation and reconciliation story um, comes out of Hollywood. Is this, it's, um, it's, a, it's a movie that maybe you've seen called Taken. Taken is one of my favorite movies. Anytime uh, that movie, I see it on TV, like I'm canceling my plans for the next three hours and watching this movie. Um, and and, and to, to, to give you some background, to give you some context, if you haven't see it, uh, seen it, the the star of the movie, his name is Liam Neeson, and he has a fractured relationship with his daughter because he is an ex-CIA like, agent, and so he spent a lot of time working and not enough time being a dad. And so he's trying to mend this relationship with his daughter, and his daughter wants to uh, go abroad, wants to go to Europe with her friend, but she's, but she's under the age of 18, so she needs her dad's permission to leave the country. And so even though Liam Neeson knows how he's a CIA agent, he knows how dangerous the world is, so he's, he's like, hey, I don't, I don't feel good about this, but he eventually begrudgingly agrees to let his daughter go, let her go to, uh, to Europe. And he learns as she's leaving that she's actually um, rebelling and lying and being sneaky, to, she's actually going to Europe to follow a band all around Europe and tour with them. And, uh, and so she ends up leaving, and unfortunately she gets kidnapped and abducted quickly after she gets there. And, and she's actually on the phone with her dad whenever she gets taken. And so there's this, prob- probably one of the greatest scenes in cinema history, Liam Neeson um, is on the phone with the man who abducted his daughter, and he has a couple sentences he gets to share with them, one including, um, if you don't let her go, I will find you, and I will kill you. And the guy says, good luck. So, like, it's on. Like, like, they're, they're, like few movies can build tension like this. I love it so much. And so, and, so his, and so the dad, being a good dad, being a loving father, wanting to rescue his daughter, takes off instantly and goes to Europe, and, tra- and, and tracks down his daughter through, through just an incredible, incredibly dangerous journey. He ends up tracking down his daughter. And in the last, uh, s- last few scenes of the movie, he ends up coming face-to-face with his daughter. Um, and, and she's being held hostage with a knife to her neck. And, and Lee- Liam Neeson 
with a gun takes the guy out. And so there's this moment that they're about to be reconciled and run into each other's arms. But her being, being so uh, emotionally, just, just imagine the things that she has been through. So her and just a, a quivering voice just looks at her dad and says, Dad, you came for me. You came for me. And friends, I can't think of a better parallel, a better biblical parallel of our story of what God did to bring us salvation, that we had fallen into sin, that we were under a new master, but God made a plan to come after us, that Jesus got off of his throne in heaven, came into the world on a rescue mission for us. Now, um, Along the way, unfortunately, God's people, if you, if you read a lot of the New Testament, they had this understanding that, that the Messiah, that the promised one who, who would come, like they believed that, that God was going to come and rescue them. They believed it, but, they, but they, they thought that he would just come in some sort of military dominance. They forgot the second part of Genesis chapter 3 where, where his heel had to be bruised in the meantime, and there's... there's there's an Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy that said that the, that the coming Messiah was had to suffer. And so it doesn't take much of a Bible scholar or church background for you to, to probably grasp the idea that, that, that this suffering happened on the cross, that Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross, that he had to go there to be, for us to be saved, for us to experience salvation, for, and for us to be reconciled back to God. And, and so... Um, if you have a Bible, I would love it if you would turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. In, in my preparation, uh, I, I really, this whole chapter is good, um, and so I don't have specific verses that we're going to read up here, but, but this is an easy, um, easy text to listen to. And the reason I think it's important for us to go to this text and look at the cross is because this is, this is the big crescendo of, of God's salvation story. This is the apex. This is, this is the moment where we are purchased back to God. So it's important that, that we realize what's happening here. So I'm going to start in John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And this is the, uh, um, this is the account that John writes of, uh, of Jesus going, um, going to the cross. So starting in verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So pause right there. Pilate is a, is a Roman governor and he had the authority to crucify Jesus. And so what he did is that he had him flogged. Other accounts uh, say scourged. And what that means is that, um, is that Jesus went through the most severe beating imaginable. Oftentimes it was done with a whip called the cat of nine tails, which is like a, a multi-frayed whip. Oftentimes on the edges it had bone and pieces of metal meant to tenderize the flesh of the individual, of the victim. Oftentimes, history records that, the, that this flogging would be so bad that the, that the victim wouldn't even survive it to make it to the cross. And so that w- what's happening here, what's happening to Jesus is extremely painful, extremely gruesome, and extremely gory. And this is what Pilate did to Jesus. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came, up to sail, they came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They are punching Jesus. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said, See, I am bringing him out to you, 
that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And perhaps a better way to convey that message of what Pilate is trying to say is, Look at this poor guy. Like Jewish leaders, like, what more do you want him to go through? Don't you see that he can barely stand, that, his, that, that some of his organs may be showing? Like, what more do you want? Isn't this enough? But it wasn't enough. Verse 6, when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. This isn't enough. The beating isn't enough. We want him dead. And Pilate said to them, Pilate said to, to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, because I find no guilt in him. He seems innocent. Verse 7, the Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. It's important to know that, that not only um, that, that Jesus isn't dying because of what he did, but he's dying because of what he said. He kept saying that he was God, and this didn't fit well with the Jewish authorities. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. When he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, "Uh, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What Jesus is saying, you're saying, hey, Pilate, you need to humble yourself. Okay, you think that you're the big cat in town. You think that you have all the authority, but, but God has greater authority than you, that he has given you this authority. And in fact, this is all a part of his redemption and reconciliation and salvation plan, that he is going to use your wicked hands to deliver me. He is using your cowardless, hand, your, your cowardless hands to deliver me to accomplish the salvation plan. Now, fast forward with me a little bit. We're going to jump some of these verses, but what's happening here is, is, that, uh, is that Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, and, and Jesus and Pilate puts this, uh, puts this inscription over the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of, of the Jews, and, and they take Jesus' clothes, the Romans guard do, and they're and, 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 they're, and they're rolling dice, they're, they're casting lots, they're gambling for his clothes, meaning that Jesus is likely hanging there naked. It's important to know that not only did the cross bring great excruciating amounts of pain, but it also came great shame. And Jesus being so other, others-focused, even until his last breaths, he looks down at his mother And he says, John, my best friend John, the Apostle John, take care of my mother. And then this is where we want to pick up in verse 28. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Again, it's important to know that Jesus wasn't just fully God, but he was fully man, that he he was thirsty. And he said, I thirst, and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Uh, a year ago, I was studying for another sermon on the crucifixion, and I learned that these Roman guards, often they were, they were given a, a travel pack of sorts. And in that travel pack, they were given a sponge and some sour wine. And the sponge, primar- it, it's primary primary 
function was to clean themselves after using the restroom. And then this sour wine, because they learned that if we keep wiping ourselves with this and not cleaning it, that, it, that we're going to get infect, infected and, and disease is going to spread. And so they took this sour wine to try to cleanse the, uh, the sponge. And so what we see here at the cross is them jamming their toilet paper into God's mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, Jesus said. Now the plan of salvation is what Jesus is talking, talking about. This plan of salvation that, that God had long foretold in Genesis chapter 3, this rescue mission that God was, was going to bring about salvation and redemption and reconciliation had now been completed. That Jesus was faithful in every aspect of his life. He was without sin, completely obedient to the Father, but now he had been completely obedient in laying down his life for God's people. Now, I, wanna, I just want to take a look in, our, in the remaining time together of, of what happened to make this a reality for us. What really happened upon that cross? What, what, was, what was taking place in order for us to, to experience salvation? Uh, the first one you guys have learned about a couple times throughout this doctrine series, this first one is, is atonement. Atonement. And the working definition that you guys have been have been dealing with is, is, is atonement is the work that Jesus did in his life and death to earn our salvation. A good verse for this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin. If anyone tries to tell you that Jesus wasn't perfect, they're wrong. Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. He was the God-man. He knew no sin, but he became sin, that God put the penalty of sin on him. So what? So that way we might become the righteousness of God. That when Jesus died, when he hung upon that cross, he was absorbing, quenching, and satisfying the wrath of God towards sin. That he didn't just suffer, but he died. What Jesus was doing is that God's wrath was like, was like a crosshairs of a rifle pointed in our direction. And Jesus, in love, said, let me take it. Let me take it. I love my people. Let me take the wrath for my people. And you need to know this morning that because of sin, because of your sin and because of mine, that something must suffer and that something must take on the wrath of God. Something must die. The question is, is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be me? Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be you? That Jesus, although he is full of love, great, he is full of love, he is also a just God. That he can't just overlook your sin. Hey, say, you know what? I'm not holy like that. Don't worry about it, brother. Like, like you, just, you just keep on doing you. No, he has to punish sin. And that's, what, that's, that's one of the primary things that Jesus was, was, was doing on the cross, that he was atoning for our sins, that he was paying the debt that you and I had accumulated. He didn't have a debt. He was perfect. You and I had a debt, and he was paying that debt. And remember, he did this. Remember from Romans 5, whenever we first started together, that he did this while we were still sinners. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But verse 8, listen to these words. 
But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while you and I were still doing what we wanted to do, not obeying to God, not submitting to God, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's so important that you know that. You will encounter teachings by what, 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 what seems like good-intentioned Christians and pastors that say God will love you by healing all your disease. God will love you by giving you success in life. No, he won't. That is not what God did to demonstrate his love for you. God owes you none of that. What God did to demonstrate his love for you and for me was dying in my place, hanging upon the cross, that he took the punishment that was fit for me. That's what God did. He owes you and I nothing else. And there's going to be seasons in your life where you're going to be, you're, where you're, you're going to have a crisis of faith. We're going to say, God, I don't feel you right now. I don't feel you. I don't, I, I don't sense you. The world is collapsing around me. I've lost loved ones. I've had miscarriages. I've, 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 all these terrible things are happening to me. I've, I've lost my job. None of that echoes God's love for you. What God did for you is die in your place. He executed and accomplished the greatest rescue mission of all time. That's what God did for you. Martin Luther, uh, the, the great reformer, uh, he, he has a saying that, that I've just fallen in love with. He says, I have, to tell my God, I have to tell myself the gospel every day because I forget it every day. You and I have to tell ourselves the gospel every day that Jesus came to die for me, that he loved me, that he has made me his own. That's how he demonstrated his love for me, not by making my pockets fat with cash or healing all my sicknesses, that Jesus demonstrated his love for me by dying in my place. Um, how many in the, in the room have ever seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie? Um, now that we're coming upon Easter, I encourage you greatly, watch that movie. It is rated R, um, but mainly for the gore and, 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 the, and just the, uh, the, I mean, you see the punishment that Jesus went through. And so, you know, talk to your parents before watching it. But I would, I would so, so encourage you to watch that movie because it, it, it so greatly and accurately depicts what Jesus went through, how the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. Um, on our behalf. But one of the, uh, the, the director of the movie, his name is Mel Gibson, and you ask any adult, he's got his own set of problems. But one thing that, one thing that, that Mel Gibson got um, that, that, that I want to echo to you this morning is that um, Mel Gibson actually appears in the movie. Most people don't know about this. He appears in the movie, but you don't see his face but what you do see is his hands, and I have a picture that I brought with me. Um, this is his hands at the top, um, putting the nail in Jesus' hands. Because what Mel Gibson got is that his sin caused Jesus' death, that he played a role in Jesus' death. Because of him, Jesus had to die. The, 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 one of my favorite songs is a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's a verse in there that says, it was my sin that held him there. Like sometimes we just, we, we think about the work that Jesus did on the cross and we get so accustomed to it, we wear it around our neck, we have tattoos of it, that we don't recognize that it was because of me and my wickedness and my rebellion against the king that Jesus had to die, that I played a role in putting him upon that cross. 
there's an extremely helpful illustration that, that the Bible uses to depict our relationship with Jesus and how it functions, and it is, uh, it is that of a shepherd. That throughout the, time, throughout, uh, the Bible, um, God says that the, 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 the one coming who we know as Jesus He's going to be like a shepherd to my people. And whenever Jesus shows up on the scene, he really leans into that metaphor and illuminates it for us. Uh, so look at John 10 with me. He says, I am the good shepherd. This is verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I realize that if my sheep are in danger and if it comes to me and the sheep having to die, that I'm going to lay my life down. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. Praise God for that. He's talking about you and me, not just a group of people in first century Palestine, that i got to go after my people, and they, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So what we, what we learn about Jesus' crucifixion is, is this isn't God's plan somehow getting, getting taken uh, taken off guard, that Jesus was somehow cornered and, and he wasn't able to do the things that he wanted to do. No, for, for, for three years of his ministry, he's saying, I'm going to lay my life down willingly. Nobody takes it from me. Pilate, you don't take me from me. Jewish authorities, you don't take it from me. I am going to willingly lay it down to atone for the sins of my people. I'm going to lay it down. And so this is the good news that I carry with me this morning using this, 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 this sheep a shepherd metaphor is that no matter how far you have strayed, that Jesus' blood has finished the work to pay your debt and to bring you back to him. It doesn't matter what sin you struggle with, what sin so easily entangles you up, how far you feel like you have strayed from God, that his blood finished the work to pay your debt and to bring you back to him. And the th and the second thing of God, second part of God's salvation story that, 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 that explains this is that God not only pays your debt, but he reconciles you. This is the, the second part of that Romans passage that we, read, that we read earlier, where Paul says, For it was while we were still enemies that we were reconciled to God. By the death of his son, by the death of Jesus, we were reconciled. Much more now that we ha are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what Paul's trying to tell us is not only did God pay our debt and say, you are, you, you are now free, the guilt has been removed, but God in his salvation plan is reconciling us back to himself, that he is restoring right relationship in us through Jesus and through his blood. And Jesus, again, leaning into this shepherd metaphor, what he says is, he says, hey, listen, I'm not like other shepherds, okay? I am a good shepherd, and I'm not going to do what other shepherds would do. Look what he says in Luke chapter 15. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one lost one until he finds it? Jesus is saying, a, a, a normal shepherd, if he's got a hundred sheep, 
if one strays away and runs off, he's going to count his losses and say, okay, you know what? At least I have my 99 here. But Jesus is saying, that does not reflect me and who I am and what I have come to do. Verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder. He, he finds that lost sheep. He puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Friends, there is rejoicing that happens in heaven whenever you and I experience salvation. Not only is our sin forgiven, but we are brought back to the fold of God. We are brought back into right relationship. And there is a party going on in heaven with your name on it and with my name on it. If you, if you, are, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, if your trust is in Jesus, the, the, the day that that decision was made, the day that that faith was, was placed in Jesus, that there was a party going on in heaven. In my case, in 2014, in May, that there was a party going on in heaven, that, that, that I, I, I realized that I was in sin and that I needed rescue, so I turned from that and placed my faith in Jesus. I said, Jesus, you are king. You know what's best for me. You have came to, to, to die in my place and, and pay my debt, and so I am throwing myself upon you, Jesus. You are king. You deserve all my praise, all my honor, and all my allegiance, that there was a party going on. And this morning, if you're not a Christian, today can be your day. Your sins can be forgiven, and you can be reconciled with God, and there will be a party going on in heaven with your name on it, that you have received reconciliation, that God's salvation plan has been extended to you. So turn away from your sin and throw yourself upon Jesus. Talk to anyone in this room who has taken that step, and they will tell you it is the best decision they have ever made, that God's grace wants to overflow into every aspect of your life. And the third and final part, kind of implication, if you will, of God's salvation plan is that he sets you free. He delivers you. That God's plan includes saving you from the power of sin. And because of Jesus' blood, I want you to get this, that you and I go from a slave to a son, from a slave to a daughter. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, if, if you know me, you know that I'm a, I'm a guy of my Bible, okay? What, what I don't think the world needs is just another opinion. What I think we need is the opinion. Like, what does God have to say? And one thing I love about God in his word is that he loves me enough to tell me the truth about myself. That, you know what, I'm not as hot as I think I am. I'm not as good as I think I am. That I am a sinner enslaved to sin, and I need a rescuer. I need a savior, and God says the same thing about you, that you are a slave that needs rescued, that you and I are enslaved, and, and you learned about this a couple, you learned about this last week, I believe, how, how you and I have this sinful nature because of what Adam did, because of Adam and Eve, their sins spread into the world, and now, and now 
sin just affects us, that you and I, even in our redeemed state, even if you love Jesus and trust in Jesus, you still have these bends inside of you, right? Like, like my soul and my heart wants to go to such dark places. Amen. Like, I feel you. And I, and I constantly have to pray for myself, God, make me new. Set me free the way that your word says that it can. See, the, our, our culture uses the word addiction, but the Bible uses the term slavery. That you and I are in shackles. Some of you, if you wonder why I keep stumbling upon this, I keep tripping up, I want to get it out of my life, I keep trying to white-knuckle it and, and, and put accountability in place, and I, but I just can't stop it. That is a slap in the face to the gospel of Jesus, that you were never meant to overcome it. You are not the hero in the story, but Jesus is, that he has come to set you free. And look how he finishes that verse. He says, whoever practices a sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What I have come to do, part of my salvation plan, is to set you free. So that way you would, you would no longer be in bondage to sin, but Jesus' blood finished the work to pay your debt and to bring you back to him. But not only does he set you free, but again, part of this reconciliation process, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is John 112, he says, but to whoever who would receive him and believe in his name, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, what, what some of you need, you need to do this morning and, and what God's salvation plan is wanting to reveal to you is that sin no longer has a grip on you. That some of you, although you are free, you're still living like a slave. Whenever Abraham Lincoln uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, setting all slaves everywhere free, a lot of them stayed right where they were at. All they had to do was go to their slave owners. I know I'm, I'm probably painting with too broad of a brush, but, but, but legally speaking, what they had to do was, was go to their slave master and say, I'm free. I'm free. And for some of you, what you need to do is whenever Satan comes after you, you need to confront him in the face and say, I have a new identity now. I no longer answer to you, but I belong to Jesus, that Jesus has purchased me by his blood on the cross, and I am free. I have experienced salvation. So when you place your faith in Jesus, what you're doing is you're trusting his words. It is finished. It is finished, that the debt had been paid, that it is finished, that you can come back and be reconciled that it is finished, that, that you are set free. And this is why I want us to be, to be careful with some of our, some of our language, that um, sometimes the word, I accepted Jesus, doesn't paint an accurate picture of what, of what really happened whenever we met Jesus. That Jesus saved me. We say, Jesus, you, you saved me. You pulled me out of the pit that was my life. You saved me from the wrath of God. You saved me from my sin. Jesus, all glory, all honor, and all allegiance goes to you. It is your works, not mine. It is finished, Jesus. You did the work. And so, again, friends, I'm pleading with you. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, be reconciled to God. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh, King of the universe, has come 
to take care of your greatest need. I know in high school you have some things that seem like mountain problems. Like, I can't get over this problem in my life. And can I tell you, that problem pales in in comparison to your greatest problem, needing someone to pay your debt, needing a Savior. That is mankind's greatest need that we need, a Savior. So be reconciled to God this morning. Your sins can be paid for. Your guilt and shame can be removed. You can be reconciled and you can be set free. And for those of you who have been awakened to that truth, who have placed your faith in Jesus, let us not be apathetic towards Jesus. Let us not just come in here week after week and say, yeah, I'm in church. Yeah, I agree that God is good. Let us praise him and worship him. Let us not go days, weeks, and months without getting excited about what Jesus has done for our behalf, on our behalf. One of one of the greatest gifts I can give my daughter Maisie is to let her see me get emotional about what, about what Jesus has done for me. To let her see, see me come before my Father in heaven, come before King Jesus and say, Jesus, you paid it all for me. You paid it all for me. And friend, can, I, can I speak to the men in the room in particular? Because sometimes it's like a manly thing just to sit here during worship and cross my arms and look like a cool cat. Let me tell you, you're not cool. All right? But what, what, what is cool is worshiping Jesus. If you can get excited about a grown man carrying a pigskin across the goal line, there should be some sort of enthusiasm to your worship to Jesus. Right? Let's get excited when we worship Jesus. Because he is the one who set us free, like we sang earlier, my living hope that Jesus, and as we're going to learn about next week, that this is an eternal thing, that when Jesus purchased us and said it is finished, it was an everlasting and eternal thing that you and I can rest in assurance that, that this doesn't depend on how good I can be, but how good Jesus is towards me. Friends, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for what you did to rescue and to save us. We're humbled, um, which is what you want us to be. Um, we're humbled by the work that you did. How we couldn't save ourselves so often. We want to be the hero in the story. We want to be the one who, who, who throws the stone in the giant's face and it collapses and falls. But Jesus, that is you, that you are the Savior, that you are the God, that you are the one. So God, may we... Uh, may you open our eyes to that truth and may we humbly come before you laying our sin at the feet of the cross because that's what you want. You want our sin and in return, Jesus, we are forgiven. Our debt is paid. We are reconciled and we are set free, Jesus. We're so thankful for your plan of salvation. May we just put everything we have, may we push all the chips to the center of our lives, staking claim that you did the work that it is finished. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. We pray this all in your powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Green Student Ministries High School Podcast of the Chapel in Green. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at gsm at thechapel.life or follow us on Instagram at Green Student Ministries. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.